Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Welcome, everybody, to the Family Biz Show. I'm your host, Michael Columbus, with Family Wealth and Legacy here in Rochester, New York. Um, today, I am really excited to bring um, another set of incredible guests. Um, you know, typically, most people are really reluctant to uh, set up in a meeting with an attorney, yet alone a meeting with two attorneys. And, and to think that they're going to have a great time. Well, I'm here to tell you folks that this is going to be a great time. Um, for those of you who have been following me for a while, you, you know, you know that um, I'm a giant fan that when you're working on your estate, that you're working with an ActTech fellow. And I am blessed to have two ActTech fellows here with me today. So Ray Odom and John A. Warnick, welcome to both of you. Thank you, Michael. Great. It's a pleasure to be here, Michael. So we have a tradition on the show where rather than me reading the laundry list of wonderful accolades in your bio, people can go to the website to read those things. What I have, what I have found to be you know, kind of a little bit more fun, a little bit more exciting is to kind of take us through your journey. Take us through, you know, what were the steps? How did you end up working with families you know, family businesses and families of wealth so that people get a kind of a background of, you know, where did you come from and how did you get here today? So Ray, would you mind kicking us off and tell us about your journey? All right, very good. I was looking forward to hearing John's first so I could try to copy him. <laughs> Fair enough. So uh, yes, my journey started, you know, coming out of law school, I was a, thought I was gonna be a tax guy and I began uh, as tax counsel at Northern, and really enjoyed a lot of the nuances of you know, the tax code, and really didn't have a connection with clients, per se, except that I would be called in when it was you know, problematic. One of my early situations was I was called in when there was a Greek shipping magnate who uh, uh, had, we had filed a tax return for, and it looked like we had ever done everything perfect, but you know, when you're dealing with shipping, it, the rules are amazingly complex. And I remember using the tax law to save the day for our client and for our company. I felt pretty good about that. Uh, fast forward and I went into private practice and the, the private practice was with a firm that represented uh, Dutch clients. And that shouldn't mean anything to you except for there was this uh, unusual propensity for uh, Dutch clients to be in the um, garbage business, believe it or not. And because of that, during the time when all of these local companies were selling to Browning Ferris and Waste Management, 
And those mom pa companies that had been represented by our firm for a long time, all of a sudden were getting $100 million in cash in the 80s, back when that was really 100 million almost. <laughs> and wow. so that was another experience. And the, the whole idea of the complexity of families and their ownership. And then from there, uh, at, when I came to Northern Trust, back to Northern Trust, in a role of a, a trust administrator and uh, as a relationship manager. And my story that brings me to this point is a story of a wealthy woman who um, had about, oh, maybe 200 million or so dollars, but all she cared about was her home, uh, her ranch, and uh, which was a family business. And we kept saying, well, there's other things, other family businesses we should care about. And ultimately, um, all the things that we tried to do for her, she never really caught on or cared about. And then she died in a year in which there was no estate tax, 2010. And that was when I got religion because I realized that I had spent all of my time, five years with her, trying to create a tax experience that wasn't relevant at her death. And that she had from the beginning wanted her business interest, her money interest, all to be part of a purposeful trust, as uh, I hear it, John A's thoughts, uh, purposeful uh, trust that took care of giving her children an experience that would allow them to be the best they could be. And, and that really is how I got to being an advocate for the use of trust and purpose statements and statements of intent uh, for anyone, anyone who is in business or who has wealth. Love it. I appreciate you sharing. Thank you. John A, tell so us. So I'm going to just uh, turn over to the side so that you can get a little glimpse of um, three of a kind and a joker. That's the, the steer is the joker in that oil painting behind me. And it, <laughs> don't need the blue hornet glasses. Um, it tells a little bit of my story. I've always, um, my father was raised on a farm. My mother was raised on a farm, both uh, dairy farms, although my father also had some sheep uh, in their family. My dad ended up becoming a professor of animal science of reproductive physiology, to be precise. When I was 14, our family was involved in, believe it or not, a case in the U.S. tax court. My father had spent a little over almost um, a year and a half outside the U.S. We as a family had gone with him. He had been working for the United Nations that year and a half. And there was a controversy, tax controversy, over um, whether the income earned while outside the U.S. was taxable. So... Um, he and the other professor that were kind of two guinea pigs in this case, um, they went up to the tax court together. I was actually interviewed in kind of a deposition type setting um, by the tax attorney in Washington, D.C., who was representing us and the other professor who was uh, Professor Scott. Anyway, these two cases um, were decided in our favor. Uh, but that stuck with me. It filled me with this excitement around tax. I thought this tax attorney was almost as cool as Ray Odom. You know, he was polished and and really just <laughs> really 
a gentleman, and uh, his name was Angelo Iadarola. And so I I went off, uh, charged through college as fast as I could, got into a great law school, decided that I was going to be a tax attorney. The law school I went to, fortunately, had both a master's level tax program that was in the evening, and I was working in the day and going to school at law, going to law school at night. So I took a lot of those master's level tax courses. And when I came out, I was a tax geek. And I initially, for the first five or so years, kind of parallel story with Ray, very much um, thought everything was in the dotting of the I's and the crossing of the T's on the tax returns and the structural, you know, the forms that we would use to implement tax strategies. It was in the next 15, 20 years of my practice evolution that I became purposeful and uh, there was a, a major event, actually two events, within quick succession that occurred to me right around the turn of the century and in the year 2000. And they forever changed the trajectory. After that, those two experiences, I really began to ask, um, isn't there a better way um, to do this planning? Isn't there a way that we can avoid some of the loss of human potential, the fracturing of families that I was seeing show up all too often uh, in the technical plans that we had so precisely erected, but then they were kind of through these forces that we didn't anticipate or couldn't control were being torn apart. So that's how um, I, it was asking that question, isn't there a better way? That's what led me to a series of amazing professional experiences. I've always often said the clients have been my greatest teachers and everything that I've learned in the last 15, 20 years uh, really can be traced back to those two professionally jarring experiences I had that caused me to ask that question. Awesome. Again, appreciate you sharing. Here's a question I don't, I don't know the answer to. How long have the two of you known each other? Ray, let me take a first stab at that. I, sure. I believe that Ray came um, on behalf of Northern Trust to Denver um, probably in the 06, 07, 08 timeframe. Somewhere, I believe, in that period of time is when I – that was the first time um, I got to hear Ray in person, got introduced to him, um, and began to follow him. The reason I ask is because I think it's really interesting how you're in different states, you're in different companies, you're not affiliated, and the path sounds almost identical. And that's, you know, my story, how I found you, John A., is very similar, except the families that I was serving, you know, they were a million to $10 million. They weren't huge, giant wealth. But what we saw over and over again was we would put together these really good technical estate plans with the help of the attorneys. And we would, you know, put all the tax pieces together. And, and back in the day, there even, you know, if you had $5 million, there was still a tax problem sometimes. Right. Um, but they would, you know, a, a client would pass 
And the whole thing that we put together was unraveled because nobody wanted the cottage on the lake. Nobody wanted, you know, this, that, or the other thing. They didn't want to spend time together once mom and dad were gone. And so that's when I said the same thing. There has to be a better way. And that better way is just communication. So that's what we're here to talk about today. Ray, you, I, I, inter I, I think you had something you wanted to add about the Ghana. No, just that uh, his recollection of, of our meeting is accurate, although uh, he was a bit of my hero before then. I just didn't know it. That's right. <laughs> Fair. This is the, the Mutual Admiration Society. I love it. So uh, you know, I think we both have, Ray already knew a lot. I knew a little, uh, maybe a lot in some respects, but we both learned so, so much more in the last 10, 12, 14 years, whatever it's been that since we first met. Love it. So today's show is called- Michael, let me say this. I, it is true. I've been privileged to serve um, billionaires, centimillionaires, um, but uh, I find truthfully that the number of digits in a balance sheet uh, reflecting a family's financial capital isn't an accurate uh, barometer of how purposeful that plan might be. And those, I, I found that clients, the, the kind of millionaire next door client that nobody might suspect of being a millionaire, um, they sometimes can be as more purposeful than the billionaire or centimillionaire who has so much more financial wealth, but it really comes back to vision and heart. Um, that's what it's all about. Yeah, I would agree. So today's show, trusts, family business, purposeful or persistent. And, you know, at the, when, when just saying those words, trusts and family business, purposeful or persistent, what are the first? What are the first things that come to your mind, Ray? What do, What is that? What does that say to you when we when we just utilize that title? You know, it really sets up the the conflict that you know you're taught in law school, and I think even our clients understand that um, a family business and the business entity that it that it, it is in is somehow going to last forever. That's what we talk about: the perpetual kind of uh, entity and it's going to persist. And sometimes, you know, we kind of assume that the fact that we have a business entity that doesn't die means that uh, we have a purpose. And for me, that's not the case. And so what your title says is, look, there's a persistence built into the nature of a business entity, but that's completely different from what its purpose is. And you shouldn't really confuse the two or else you're gonna wind up having something that doesn't persist because it doesn't have a purpose. Love it. That's, that's fantastic. And you know, when we did a pre-show call together, the three of us, and I had a, a lot of fun going through, just thinking through you know, what we were gonna be sharing, what we're gonna be talking about. And one of the first things that we uncovered and through that conversation was the fact that, you know, the difference between, 
you know, having a family run business versus a family in business and why that's so important to make that distinction. And, you know, John A, would you mind, you know, just kind of walking through that for people? What does that mean when I say that to you? Well, I think, um, you know, this is really one of the great challenges that faces the entrepreneur, business owner, uh, family, um, patriarch or matriarch, is how do we, um, how do we bring family and business together and become, as you said, Michael, a, a family in business or as I like to say, an enterprising family. Um, I have I've seen too many situations where sadly family took second or third chair to the business. And so the, the founder typically um, gives so much energy, attention, time to building the business, creating this financial empire, huge success, and the family, in a sense, is really third place um, or second place, at least, in his life or her life. And there is um, that, that really is not a positive recipe for a flourishing family. So it, takes, it really takes discipline. It takes focus. It uh, takes a little bit of that persistence word for someone to rebalance and either put family ahead of business or at least on equal footing with business to make sure that family is never made to feel second place. And, and I think that what we're going to be talking about today are different ways that Ray and I and you, Michael, have discovered that we can help families put heart and soul into the structure that um, are the vehicles for the intergenerational transfer of this wealth, whether it's an operating business or more of a, a passive, um, you know, holding company or family investment company. Ray, anything to add to that? No, except amen. That's well said. <laughs> the, I would throw in just the, the other piece to that. And, and John Egg. I think we're on the same, 100% on the same page about, you know, bringing in that heart and soul into the thing, as Ray said, purpose. I think, you know, it, it, making sure that there's a purpose behind the business. A lot of times when we hear, when I hear that, people are thinking about, am I making decisions for the business from a family perspective or from a business perspective? And if we're making them for the family perspective, sometimes that that can turn into a mess. Something, you know, it's you get, you get a company vehicle because your last name is Smith. Um, you know, the, you get a, a raise because you're going through a divorce right now and child support's going to be more, you know, higher. So there's that piece of that, you know, portion. And then there, you know, and then as well as the, you know, is this a lifestyle business versus an equity business? But I think it's that, that, that piece that you both bring to the table that we're going to be spending the, the, the focus on of that, how do we bring that purpose, the values, 
that, that oomph that's extra that really makes being in a family business to the nth degree. So I, uh, I appreciate that. Ray, go ahead. You, yeah, no, I, I think, I think you're, you're honest on that. I think the, 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 the key is that when we talk about uh, business, one of the phrases we all use is, well, you know, it's business. It's, it, you know, this is business. And what we know what we're trying to say, we're saying, look, there is an, a need to make a decision that has an objective reality apart from the emotions that are connected to relationships. And that's a truth, but it really is a subordinate truth to the greater truth, which is yes, there is that need to make that uh, decision that has this objective base, basis. But to me, it's always set in a greater context as to whether the decision is bringing life and uh, meaning and, and uh, purposefulness to the family and the individuals involved, or whether it's taking away from life. I, I actually like that word, whether you know, good and bad doesn't work so well. But it's, is, it, is it something that's allowing thriving and flourishing, or is it something that's going to set up chaos and division? And even though the decision is very objective and is, you know, reviewed by experts who have all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, you know, numbers and things that we can look at. At the end of the day, when that objective decision over some measure of time is causing a, de a deterioration of the lives in being, that's not a good decision, whether you call it family or business. And I think that's the thing I'm trying to bring uh, to my clients uh, when, when I talk about this issue. I, I try not to get into that dualism of business, family, but have this bigger context of relationships and a motive for profit that's designed to help people thrive. Great. That rolls right into, and tell me if, if this sounds right, but when we were, we were talking about controls versus roles, why don't you, you know, what I, what I, my note here is that, I, you know, controls versus roles, kind of understanding the difference when it comes to family, shareholders, and employees when the business is held inside the trust is kind of that controls versus roles. Do you want to hit on that for a moment? Um, I, I can just offer a little bit and then I'd love to hear what Ray might uh, contribute. Um, I do think this is an important distinction and today, um, as I look back on almost a four decade long professional career serving families in the tax area, particularly in the wealth transfer planning area, the one thing that stands out to me, if there's a trend line that you can plot and see kind of a steady progression over 40 years. That trend line to me is complexity in terms of the, the base documents, the trust documents. When I first started practicing, um, we were just on the edge of automating word processing. That word processing was just beginning to come into its own. And 
So will documents and trust documents were like average will, five to six pages, average trust, 15 to 20, 25 pages max. And then you see with the proliferation of technology that the size and the complexity of these documents has grown exponentially over the last 30, 35 years to where now, you know, a common, <laughs> quote, simple trust may be 50 to 70 pages in length. It's so, so lengthy, so complex. Um, what is another trend that ties back into this point, Michael, is that um, it used to be predominant that we would see distributions, large distributions, often staggered over a period of time. It could be a chronological timed uh, distribution pattern like 25, 30, 35, or 30, 35, 40. But the idea of a trust, a perpetual trust, or even a lifetime trust was less common. Today, you can flip that. And um, even modest wealth today, um, the attorney is strongly suggesting that you need an asset protection trust kind of wrapper as part of your estate plan. And this means that you want to protect your children for their lifetimes. So this leads to the idea of a lifetime or in some cases in larger estates, perpetual trust, the generation skipping trust, the so-called dynasty trust. Well, how does that relate back to control and roles? Um, many times today, the control and the ownership is put into trust for tax purposes or asset protection purposes. And um, so the, this really kind of confuses things because it used to be four or five decades ago that that stock would go to an individual. The individual would become an owner. They would have a role as owner Today, it's the trustee more often than not that is going to be the, quote, owner. And the role of the beneficiary, the individual family member, is difficult. So this is where I think from a trust design standpoint for business owners, um, be careful. Think seriously about what does it mean to um, divorce or erect a, a huge wall between your children and the responsibilities of ownership. Is there a way that you can design your trust so that the children can be taught not just to be excellent beneficiaries, but also to feel the responsibilities of ownership and to learn what it takes to be a great owner? And Ray, you know, when you throw when it's the business that's inside of there, it, it, it's even 10 times more complicated, correct? It is. And I think that uh, the, the thing I love about trust is its base concept. The concept of a trust says something that's really counterintuitive, that the person who owns something is not the person who is supposed to benefit, nor is the person who benefits in title as an owner, but all the benefit of ownership goes to the beneficiaries of the trust, but all the responsibilities and burdens 
of ownership goes to this person who gets zero, that's a key thought, zero benefit. In fact, you know, just for anyone listening, that zero benefit is so small that uh, as John A knows, they, we actually had to create statutes that allowed trustees to get paid because it was considered a conflict of interest even to get paid in the role of a trustee. Now that's not as well, you know, not a problem. But the point of it is, is in the area of managing, um, you know, money, it's nice to have that bifurcation. But I think as John Ace pointed out, uh, the reality that uh, control and ownership decisions could be disconnected or apart from the actual dollar value wealth benefit of the dividends and the stock ownership and the day-to-day -day operations. I actually think that's, that's a good way to think about things because for me, in talking with many business owners, the idea of control and benefit get, get morphed together so often that they don't have a clean and clear understanding of the long-term benefits or detriments of what their business structure or their business decisions are doing. And so, because as John well put it, back in the day, they owned it, they, the checking account, everything was kind of running together. And so you never really thought about all the various impacts of decision-making within the business. For me, it really allows for someone, a lot of times in my trust, the, a CEO will be trustee, not a corporate fiduciary, but a CEO, uh, someone who's, who's got an interest in making sure the business survives and yet knows that, but the business is surviving for what purpose? To give you a job? No, it's to give this greater entity called the family the ability to thrive and, and survive, and this group of people called employees the ability to have that same thing. And I think a trust lends itself to that, but why do I agree with John A that our complexity, and we were kind of a cottage industry, you know, we, we driven by taxes. But what we want to do, if you're really going to do this effectively, is back away from the complexity. And that's why purpose and this naming and these statements are so important in my mind. Love it. That's great. You know, it's, it's interesting naming the CEO as the trustee isn't something that you hear too often. And, and it, but at the, as soon as you say it, as soon as, as soon as you connect those pieces, it makes awfully good sense that you would want somebody, you know, at the helm of the trust that is owns the business to be somebody that, you know, cares about and is in charge of the business. That's great. I've also seen it done in, in smaller cases sometimes where they'll split the own, you know, the, the shares into voting and non-voting shares and the, and the voting shares will stay outside of the trust, but the value is inside. But that causes all kinds of, you know, dilemmas as well so, sometimes. Um, Ray, I think I want to come back to you for a second here. And is my, is my, I sound like I'm echoing right now. Are you getting that? I'm no, I'm not. Okay. I'm going to try just try something here real quick just to make sure. And Sierra, feel free to throw a hand up if you see something uh, or hear something rather. Um, thank you. The, the nice part about doing these is we can edit out the, uh, the middle sections and 
put it together for the podcast. Um, one of the things we talked about when we were together was the impacts of changing what to why for the, and when we're making decisions. Do you want to talk, us, talk about that a little bit, Ray? And then, John A., I'll throw it over to you. Um, for, for me, the, the why is everything because, um, you know, uh, you had mentioned in our pre-talk the idea of, of uh, you know, the uh, infinite uh, game and the just cause. And I, I think that's right, is that especially in these times, uh, and one of the things that COVID-19 has done, if we're really honest with each other, it's really made us think about what really matters, right? All of a sudden, when the, the urgency of daily decisions can't kind of rise to its normal kind of importance, you're, you're kind of left with, okay, well then if that's not the urgency, what's, what's really important? If the urgent is important, what's important? And now you're back to the things I think that, that really do kind of, kind of drive uh, the decision-making. And I think that why is absolutely key. And that's what I was trying to allude to earlier when I said, yes, it's a business decision, but why does the business need to exist? Why is it? And I'll just give you one quick example. Uh, is I have a, uh, she's not a client, so I can, I can kind of talk freely. Uh, they own a, a medical records company. And the, per the person literally defined the medical records company says, we exist, our why is to help people have better health and they need to get records. And we, and that purpose just permeated everything. The trust makes sense, the, the money, and literally, and it makes sense even to the family. But the why of the business begins to permeate everything about how you do what you do. And, and to me, that's, that's essential if you're going to have any kind of longevity and if you're ever gonna have any synergy between family, where there's relationships or you know, important over generations, and a business entity where, there, where profit is the main motive. Agreed. I'm trying to, John, I muted you for, oh, there you go. Um, um, yeah, I, I just um, kind of climb right on top of Ray's bandwagon there and say that I think um, if you ask the question, why a trust, why this particular trust that we're designing, if we're in the process of creating a trust, or if we're thinking about uh, already existing trust, what is the principal purpose or purposes of this trust? Um, you know, why doesn't get as much deference and attention and energy as it deserves? Um, I think, as you were pointing out, Michael, the what, which is oftentimes the asset, whether it's um, a controlling interest in a business or a significant interest in a business or investable assets or the family cottage or whatever it might be, it oftentimes feels like we're paying much more attention and the drafting is much more focused on the what's, the assets that are going to be the financial capital side of this trust equation. And we just short shrift completely 
the other the the whys that go to why what what is the ultimate purpose for this? Why am I doing this? Um, you know, what do I hope to accomplish? So, being able to unleash and help a trust creator, and I use that term very intentionally. There are trust makers, trust settlers, trust grantors, but I love working with trust creators. A trust creator understands their role. It's a very creative role. It takes a lot of energy, vision, thought, and emotion, positive emotion, to really create a truly purposeful trust. But as they begin to approach this question of why, we, I'm speaking now of the Michaels, the Rays, the um, John A's, and any other advisor that is listening to this uh, podcast, we can do so much to help stretch the vision of our clients and help them understand that there is a whole another world out there of possible whys that they haven't considered that if they do get um, an opportunity to consider, they may quickly jump on those whys and go, this really is very, very important to me, and I want to make sure that we carry, make this, this a key purpose of what we're doing. Yeah. Ray, when you talked about the health, the medical, the medical um, records company, it triggered the, the book we were talking about was The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek, Simon Sinek. And you, you'll love this. I don't know if you had, when you get a chance to read it, he talks about three different um, uh, pharmaceutical companies, not pharmaceutical, but um, come on pharmacies and i'm not going to name names but we all know you know the major pharmacy you know pharmacy throughout the united states and all of them to a t their their greater good their just cause is to help the health of the patients that they serve right and the, and the people that they serve and one of the companies cut cigarettes out of their you know, out of their inventory. No longer, it doesn't fit. And this was, they did it before it mattered. They did it before people were, were yelling about it. And then the other companies that didn't when they were asked, and Simon actually reached out to several of them to say, you know, your core purpose, your just cause says to help the health of your, um, you know, your constituents and your, the, the people that you serve, but yet um, it, you sell cigarettes in your stores. How do you reconcile that? And, and that's a really good way of thinking about those things. What was really interesting was most people, you know, when they're focused on the bottom line, they're focused on the shareholder returns or the dividends that they're gonna be able to pay, they would, you know, they might be scared to make, a call like that. Um, what they found was that it didn't hurt them nearly as much as it helped them. They saw revenues increase. They saw the sales of um, tobacco patches, you know, and, and people that wanted to quit smoking. Those things all went up. And so those same people, you know, in their mind that were coming through the store and buying cigarettes, they just helped them to make that decision to say, now must be the time to say, you know, it's time for me to quit. And that just cause can really make a big difference. 
you know, I, I love that that uh, stories. Those are those are excellent. And one of the the keys uh, that's always been something John A has emphasized: you got to rehearse the stories. And that's a lot of people get when you walk in a room with with, with especially uh, the people who are on calls like this, entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, and 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 she is really driven by her next quarterly report, her annual report, the decisions that have to work about the business and its current environment. And you say, well, you know, what's your why statement? They're looking at you like, are you kidding me? But the reality is this, what I try to do is back them up. And just as you did with us, and you did a really nice job, Michael, you said, Ray, how did you get to where you are? And it's almost you're asking me that actually began to change the way I was thinking about some things I was saying. And it's so natural because when you ask the question, it requires me to add some purpose and some, uh, shall we say, kind of trajectory to what it is I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And it is embedded in that story. And all those drug companies, of course, would say, well, we got into it because we saw a solution. And the more you kind of fine-tune those stories, purpose jumps out. And this is the thing I think that most uh, of our clients and our business owners don't realize, that in rehearsing the, the backstory, the deeper story, the reason for your being, you will find the things that will make your company more profitable and your family more durable. Agreed. It's uh. It, it just, it, there's a lot to it. And I think, you know, it's easier for a family business to think about purpose a lot of times than it is for the, you know, the public companies, because you're really pushed on those quarterly pieces. And, you know, we go back to, you know, we talked about purposeful or persistent, right? Well, you know, when you are thinking about a business that is persistent um, and you're a family, you, I think it is potentially, you know, needs to be reminded, you know, at times, but it's easier to sit back and say, we don't have to think about this in terms of quarters. We can think about this in terms of generations. And, and that's, you know, a, a, a really strong positive for people. They don't necessarily have to have the returns tomorrow. Um, and that's powerful. So, and, when, and so when you put those that, you know, the persistent, and the purposeful together, that's huge. John A, we talked about, you know, and we'd hit about trusts and the family business a little bit, but when we, you know, when we start talking about creating a trust that is going to hold the family business in perpetuity, there's a lot of, of intricacies inside of there that people need to be thinking about. Is there anything, you know, we talked about it before. Where do you want to take that? What would you like to, to share with us in that regard? I, I think what you're asking, Michael, is um, could take, a, you know, another full hour for us to even begin to get deep into that. And there's so much probably more even than we could cover. But I, I think, um, you know, things that you've got to pay attention to is, um, Ray mentioned this a little bit. There's a tension here between the the demands, the needs of the business, 
and the personal individual demands of the family members, right? And part of where that shows up is in the world of distributions. And um, a trustee has a duty to, um, you know, generally to try to maximize the return on investment. Um, this would include, you know, wanting to see cash flow distributions coming to the trust so they can be distributed to the beneficiaries. But the, having a thoughtful process around um, being able to balance the needs of the business versus the needs of the family, that's very, very important. Trying to think creatively, and this is where I think Ray and I have both done a lot of, of interesting thinking and doing and working with clients who've taught us a lot, is um, it's very easy for family members to become entitled um, around distributions and to develop really a sense of entitlement. So how do we combat that? I think that's, that, that's one of the great questions in the design of a trust is to, um, and how do, we, how do we also cultivate a sense of stewardship around this family business? And then I think another, sometimes sadly owners will not consider um, but the possibility that the day may come when it's in the best interest of the family and the best interest of employees of the business itself to dispose of the business, whether that is um, taking it public, whether that's selling, um, liquidating, whatever that outcome is. So I think a lot of creative, uh, thoughtful, intention around who the trustee is going to be. Are you going to have um, investment advisors? Um, is there going to be kind of like a, a, in one situation that I worked on recently with Ray's um, company as the trustee, we put a lot of time and effort into designing a di directed trust that would give us, you know, there, there are issues about a concentrated position and the responsibility a trustee has to diversify. So we're, we're just, you know, I've hit four or five points that are important, and Ray could probably add a dozen more. So I, I hope that that was helpful, Michael, but given the time limitations, I don't know that we can cover everything. No, that, that was exactly what we're looking for, is just to understand that it is complicated. Here's a you know, real quick, you know, I mentioned this at the top of the show that you're both act tech attorneys. And, and one of the things that I think this is so important for people, um, if you own a family business, if you have created some wealth, that you have to look at the team of advisors that is around you. And, and I just think this is a really good time to hit on this. And that's that, you know, I, I've seen this so oftentimes where you know, the family has been supported by a general attorney and, you know, they were at $5 million and 10 years later, they're now a $50 million enterprise and they're still using for all of their trust and estate work and tax work. They're still using that same person who has also helped them with all the real estate deals and the business deals and the things that they put together. And, there are times, there are times when that's okay. And it, but I think it's more rare 
that somebody who was a general attorney and practiced many areas of laws with the family throughout you know, their time frame um, has the expertise that someone like one of, you know, either one of you brings to the table when you're doing this kind of design work. Would you, would you agree with that statement? I, I would totally agree with that and just add that, um, yeah, that, that person who's been there on the front lines for the family, uh, that lawyer, has a wealth of experience, insight, and knowledge that is irreplaceable. So bringing in, quote, a trust tax expert from 600 or 1,000 miles away may add something, but I, I would favor a system that we keep that individual very much part of the team yeah. um, rather than try to impose the vision and the framework that the outsider from you know, three states away brings, which it can be very helpful and insightful. And their expertise may be absolutely critical depending on the level of complexity, level of wealth. But there is a lot to be said for honoring the professional relationships that are already in place. Um, and I think too often there's a power, um, you know, the client is like the rag doll in the middle of this power struggle between competing professionals. And um, we need collaboration. We don't need competition. Amen, 100%. Ray, go ahead. Yes, I think it, it's really to the whole role and control issue that we kind of surfaced just mm -hmm. briefly, is that when you uh, get a, a, your why question uh, really in place, what John A. said really becomes critical because the person who was a part of that why now has the vested capital that will always be valuable to the organization. Because when you're based on the why, you have to have the person who was a part of that why always present and available. And so what happens is you just simply change the roles and you don't get confused by professionals who are trying to control. And I think that's what really John A is really making a strong point on, is once you turn the family business and settings and transactions into who gets to make some decision, and you boil it down to some kind of transactional control, you've lost everything in terms of what we're trying to advise here. And I think that absolutely, Johnny said, made a major point is that that person who has outgrown the transactional capital is the person who has increased in relational and in historical capital, and we need that. Yeah, it's it becomes a, not an either or situation, but a both and situation. And, and learning to collaborate, John A, is really good. I think, I feel that the, a lot of advisors, my, you know, myself included, I have been in a situation where, you know, you're working with um, a family and they, you just know that the attorney doesn't have the the expertise, the, the mastery of the document itself. I'm just talking about the, the tactical side of pieces to be able to bring in the, that expertise that's needed. But we, that, that advisor has to be very careful. It's not a displacement. 
It's a, an, in addition, we just need to add a member of the team. It's like having the designated hitter. It's, you know, you don't have the pitcher running, you know, doing everything. The quarterback doesn't do everything in the play. It's being able to know when to bring those right players in and, 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 to, and to honor, you know, both of you mentioned that. We really need to honor that relationship that the family attorney, the general attorney has had with that family for all these years because the knowledge is irreplaceable and they need to know that. That's, I appreciate that. That was a little, wasn't in our, in our pre, in our pre-meeting, but that's why I, you know, like to do this stuff. Um, we've got two other topics that I want to make sure that we have time to hit both of them. And they're so closely related. I'm going to start with you, Ray. And, you know, we talk about the gold standard, G-O-A-L. Not the, not the gold standard, which I think a lot of people, when you hear that the first time, you just want to say, oh, what's the gold standard for a trust? But what you talk about is the gold standard. So walk us through the gold standard for a little bit. Right. I think the, the key idea is that when you think about how everybody in business is successful, it's because the business has a goal. Now, we measure that goal by profit. But the point is, is that they had a goal. And that's why all of our business-related clients understand the idea that you're trying to get and accomplish an objective that has some you know, byproduct of wealth connected to it. And then what we do in estate planning and in a lot of our business plan, what we try to do is back them away from that goal and we get them into some kind of a much more nebulous world of saving taxes from laws that aren't even created yet for future administrations that haven't even taken office yet. And all of a sudden we're now into kind of like crystal ball stuff. And the client gets lost in the acronyms and, and, and all these things. But with that, the idea of a goal, what, what I've tried to do is really talk about almost the virtuous company. It's like the just cause when I use the, the, the virtuous family. What we're really trying to do, the goal is to do good to have a good company. And you know, I, you say that and sometimes people kind of, you know, say, oh, that's a little bit too soft for me. But now you look at the ESG and all the public companies who are getting tremendous pressure around these issues. And you realize that the smaller companies just have a better opportunity to do that. And so for me, that whole idea of goal is to have a purposefulness that's transcendent to the day-to-day -day operations and that allows everybody to recenter. And something you said earlier, Michael, it is the kind of goal that allows an individual or family to decide that selling actually is the right thing to do. And I am so tired of people say, oh, we know shirt sleeves and shirt sleeves and shirt sleeves. Well, if shirt sleeves was your goal, that's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and there's, I've talked to some business owners who say, "Look, I want my my grandchildren to have you know shirt sleeves on, so they learn how to how to build uh, towards getting a suit." But the reality is, for me, the the key aspect of goal is to define purpose in a succinct, transcendent way that encompasses the virtue of doing good in the greatest sense possible. Thank you, John A. I think, you know, where you and I really, you struck a chord with me many, many years ago when I took your Purposeful Trusts program. 
and and I have utilized the purposeful naming of a trust um, with many clients, and it's been, you know, for me, it's been very very fulfilling. Some of the stories that we have heard um, are great. One of the things that I'm going to ask you to do is talk about the purposeful naming of a trust. But I'd also, you had talked about the purposeful naming of the family enterprise or the holding company and how that can work together. And I think for you know our family businesses listening, that's important. Um, the other thing that I'd like you to hit on, you know, so that there's a bunch here. And Ray, at any time you want to jump in or add something, feel free as we're, as this will be a little back and forth because I think this will be fun. The, the other piece, John A., is if it's your trust or if it's a client of yours and they've come up with the name, how do you help them, you know, whether it's the trust or it's the holding company, how do we dig deep to make sure that a generation from now or two generations from now after that person is gone, that we've embedded that, that name and that how do we bring out that flavor, so to speak? How do we marinate it so that it's always there for them? Well, um, <laughs> that's again, Michael, a lot to chew on and I'll try to do it quickly. Um, and I do think um, if it's possible, one of the things that we can do to make this more concrete um, for everyone is um, I do have some sample um, clauses that show the variety of purposes, the linkage between purpose, meaning, and name, and how that plays into family enterprise or a trust. But um, if we think about it from the trust standpoint, the reason I think that name is an overlooked, it's the most often overlooked opportunity to make a trust purposeful. It is, in my mind, the simplest, most powerful way to do it. And it really just takes two kind of ingredients. One is a purposeful name. So what is a purposeful name? Well, a purposeful name would be choosing a name that has symbolism, meaning, um, purpose associated, linked into it. And then to help everyone understand what that symbolism meaning or purpose is to create what I call a statement of meaning. That statement of meaning can be just, um, you know, it can be just um, a paragraph, uh, two or three paragraphs. It doesn't have to be pages. Uh, some of the most powerful um, opportunities or examples that I've seen have been very, um, very short and powerful. So let me see if I can, I apologize, but I'm going to try to see if I can quickly find an example and just share it, read it to you. I think one of them that really strikes me as the most powerful is the Red Corvette Opportunity Trust. Um, now this was a name that was given to a trust. Um, by a client about uh, 12 years ago when I was working with her. And her key purposes for the creation of this trust gift that she was making for her family members was one, she wanted to prepare, train, equip her children 
so they would be able to manage and direct their trust inheritance. Um, the second very, very important purpose was she wanted to give them opportunities to become all that they could become. And a third opportunity that the name doesn't necessarily directly hit, but was in the statement of meaning, was she hoped that through this trust, even though she was giving them independence and allowing each of them to um, find their own paths, that they would be a, a support to each other and that the family, uh, the family fabric could uh, remain uh, very cohesive and strong and um, not fracture at her death. So she called it the Red Corvette Opportunity Trust. And I'm going to paraphrase because I haven't found my example here as quickly as I hoped. She said something like this. John Warnick taught me the story of the Red Corvette. Um, how smart would it be for a parent on their child's 16th birthday to say, sweetheart, there's a brand new shiny red Corvette in the driveway. Here are the keys. I want you to take that vet out on I-5 and have the ride of your life. In fact, invite as many of your friends as you can pile into that vet. Um, and she then said, just as it would be unwise for a parent to entrust a powerful vehicle like a Corvette to their child without it getting the car insured, without making sure the child had been to driver's education, without familiarizing the child with all of the features and the power uh, of that vehicle. Um, so if I were to make you trustee of your trust immediately upon my death, that would be like giving you the shiny red Corvette on your 16th birthday. So I've prepared a trustee beneficiary training program that you will be uh, given the opportunity to go through. And you can learn at your own pace, move as fast as you want, but when you've completed and been certified as being ready to drive your trust, the keys will be given. You will have full control over your trust at that point. And then she went on to talk about the opportunity and how she hoped they would support each other. And she closed with something like, enjoy the ride. Um, so that's, that is, uh, you know, the idea behind that name is that every time her children received a quarterly trust uh, statement, the name of the trust would flash up there. They would have been introduced to the statement of meaning. It was at the very beginning of the trust. They, every time they saw the name, they would instantly Red Corvette Opportunity Trust. They would understand the Red Corvette, the training, preparation, stewardship side of it, and they would also understand the key of the importance of opportunity. And so they'd be reminded with every statement, every time they were looked at that name, it would trigger a reflection back on what mattered most to their mom in the creation of this trust. So that's just a possibility. And the beauty of this is, is that we can do the same thing with holding companies, um, investment LLCs, even operating businesses I've seen renamed to carry a name that the family felt very, very um, tied to. I, I think, you know, we all, all know of one, you know, a company called Whole Foods. 
you know, just that really simple. Um, they did a great job with those, you know, with, with the name. And if you look, you, that, that's a really interesting company. It might be a good example for you guys to take a peek at sometime. They look at their values and their purpose. And when the year they started, um, they were in Austin, Texas. I can't remember John and Renee, and I don't remember the rest of the story, but the, basically Austin, Texas was experiencing floods. The store got flooded, but because of their core purpose was so big and so meaningful to the people that they served, they had customers show up at their store the day after the storm with mops and buckets and cleaning supplies to help because the volunteerism was driven by the core purpose of that organization. So, Ray, when we talk about namings, you know, naming of a trust, I don't, I, I never asked you this, but is that something that, that you do as well? Have you been down that road? No question. I, I don't have, uh, didn't make as powerful and has clearly delineated kind of, uh, you know, statements and, and things as, as John A did, but it's interesting. Uh, I actually, would, would put more time into the name. When, as John A was talking, I thought about the trust I opened up talking about in my own experience, uh, in terms of how I came to be who I am right now in the trust business. And what happened was we named the core trust uh, that had a operating business in it after the name of the ranch. Well, the name of the ranch was a very personal and really quite uh, spunky little name. And that literally, for everyone involved, said, we're family, we're, we have a long and rich history that was designed to benefit our family for the benefit of the community. And so literally, and of course, the one of the things that, you know, the ranch wind up having on it was talk of a conservation easement. Um, you know, there was uh, uh, certain other kind of, uh, you know, ecological things that were done, but all of it flowed so nicely from the concept of why the, the ranch was in place. And as the business, which was within the trust that was named after the ranch, now I think about it, uh, I listen, listen to John A's kind of talk about the, the Corvette. Literally, there were stories and rules that allowed the people who were involved in the business to actually mature and grow. My one quick example is this. When everybody has a little child that's under three, four or five, you say, don't go in the street. It is an absolute rule, and that rule will save their life and you must enforce it and make it a big deal. However, if they are still following that rule when they're 25 years old, you're going to put them in some kind of structured institution for mental health, okay? And so what changes? What changes is you have a core purpose that the rule was designed to effectuate. And if you're not clear about what that is, i.e. we're trying to save your life, from being struck by cars that may not be watching. If you don't get that, that bigger why involved, you're gonna have someone who's gonna be dysfunctional at the 
greatest extent. And that to me is what happens with a lot of trust and companies within trust where there's not this kind of, as John A's kind of, well, they're not a naming sort of convention that ties to a purpose, that ties to a story, that ties to the distributions and ties to a individuals who are trying to balance something that's very difficult to balance. The good of the beneficiaries versus the good of the company versus the good of the community versus the good of future generations. Those considerations are best judged and, and transitioned through the biggest and best ongoing purpose statement and, and naming and uh, reminder that you can have. Yeah, thank you. John A., I'll, I'll give you props for this one. I remember hearing you say this, you would never allow the doctor or nurse to name your child. So if, you, so if, you, if, if that's the case, then why would you do that with your trust or with your business or your, your entity? It's, it's just a great statement. Oh, gentlemen, I, like you said, John A. and Ray, I, I think the three of us need to do this again another time. Um, there are so many avenues that we could have gone down that we didn't. This is just a great teaser to be talking about, you know, putting the gold standard to a purposeful trust and, and, and making sure that you're naming them properly. And I really appreciate the time that you've spent with all of us today. Um, what I'd like, to, like you to do is just kind of close out and let people know, you know, if they wanted to reach out, you know, and, and work with either one of you, how do they get a hold of you? Where do they find, you know, information about, about you um, as we're out in the world? And what part of the, geographically, what part of the world are you in? Ray, do you want to go first? No, why don't you go first, Johnny? <laughs> okay. Well, um, I think the best way to reach me, uh, I'll give my phone number, area code 720-458-7777. Extension one, uh, that's my number at the Purposeful Planning Institute. Um, you know, I do, I'm very um, selective in who I work with. I try to make sure that I'm keeping my professional time and energy focused on purposeful projects, but I do uh, work with clients all over the country and that generally means I'm collaborating with great lawyers all over the country and other advisors all over the country. So I'd be happy to talk to anybody. You can also email me at uh, John A at purposefulplanninginstitute.com or just uh, Google Purposeful Planning Institute and you'll, you'll be able to see PPI, the, the, the community that I founded and you can see a contact us there that you could leave a message for me as well. Thank you, sir. Right. Um, I would give uh, my email. It's uh, uh, relatively simple. R O R for Ray O for Odom seven. I guess I was the seventh R O at Northern Trust. R O seven at N T R S dot com. N as in Nancy, T as in Tom, R as in Roger, S as in Sam. N T R S is Northern Trust Nasdaq symbol. Um, and that will come right to me. Um, there, uh, certainly, I don't have any problem giving my phone number out. It's 630-656-2476. Uh, uh, That's my business and uh, actually a little bit of my personal number. So you'll come right to me. The 
biggest uh, advantage of the, that I can offer to people that I talk to is that I'll be very quick to wherever you are and whatever your situation uh, to try to connect you with people like John A. and Michael who are able to uh, come aboard and be a part of a collaborative team to uh, get clients uh, into that goal standard. And that's why I, I really will uh, try to be helpful in that regard. And often, Michael, I get calls of people who simply want to say, where do I start? What's the first thing I do? And sometimes, I, I hate to say this, and I know John A has seen this too, if you start poorly, it's hard to recover even if you bring the right people in. Uh, so getting the context and, and setting up this whole idea is so critical and you've got to have the right story. And Michael, frankly, I think that's why the book, you know, Infinite Game was so good. He starts off by talking about the Vietnam War Tet Offensive, where the Viet Cong, you know, you know, won every, uh, we're supposed to win every battle, wound up losing every battle. Well, how do we lose the war if we, you know, three million of them, and of course, he sets the whole book up by saying that, because now you're listening. I think it's the same thing in our business. We have to have stories that dramatically show what we're trying to accomplish and what the negatives are if you don't attempt to do it. Having you both was uh, wonderful. I really appreciate your time and sharing all, all that you did today. Thank you everyone for joining us. Again, I'm Michael Palumbus from Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. And if there's any way that we can help you um, in your journey and helping you to become more purposeful, helping you to grow your business, to work with your family, whatever we can do to help you, feel free to reach out to us on our website, familywealthandlegacy.com. Have an awesome day, everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with The Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy, LLC, is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.